This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. you please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 32. We'll be looking at the entire chapter this morning, 32 verses. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. So Jacob went on his way. The angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And he called the name of the place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them saying, speak thus to my Lord Esau. Thus your servant Jacob says, I've dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants. And I have sent to tell my Lord that I might find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is also is coming to meet you. And four hundred men are with him. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that were with him, and the flocks and herds and camels into two companies. He said, If Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the other company which is left will escape. Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your family, and I will deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servants. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he lodged there that same night and took what came to his hand as a present for Esau, his brother, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 foals. Then he delivered them to the hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass over before me and put some distance between successive droves. And he commanded the first one saying, when Esau, my brother meets you and asks you, saying, to whom do you belong and where are you going? Whose are these in front of you? Then you shall say, these are your servant Jacob's. It is a present sent to my Lord Esau, and behold, he also is behind us. So he commanded the second, the third, and all who followed the droves, saying, In this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him, and also say, Behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me, and afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present went on over before him, but he himself lodged that night in the camp. And he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, 
and his eleven sons and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He sent them, he took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. He said, let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. He said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him and he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word today, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would ready our hearts to receive it, that we would see on display your faithfulness to your people, to our father Jacob and to his descendants, and to all of your children throughout the ages. We pray that in this text, you would point us to the hope of the gospel and our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Last time I was with you, we saw the conclusion of Jacob's 20-year tenure in the land of Laban. Laban being Jacob's uncle, who had become his father-in-law twice over. At every turn, Laban had swindled Jacob, tried to steal from Jacob, tried to do evil to him. But in these 20 years, Jacob had learned the very difficult consequences of fraud and deception and swindling, since he himself in his earlier life engaged in that sort of treachery. Remember that young Jacob swindled his brother Esau on two significant occasions. First, he swindled Esau out of his birthright by taking advantage of Esau when he was a tired hunter coming in from the field. And then he swindled Esau out of the blessing of the firstborn by deceiving their father Isaac. Now, it was the latter of these acts that flung Esau into a murderous rage against Jacob. And that was what forced Jacob to flee to the east where he would learn his hard lessons at the hands of Laban. But now, 20 years later, at the Lord's command, Jacob has resolved to go home. Now, for as long as he has been gone, he probably doesn't have a very great idea as to how things are going back in his homeland. Remember, in the ancient world, there were no phones, no mail, no email. So if Jacob had heard anything from his family, it would not have been much since he left. And the key question would have concerned Esau. Did Esau still mean to harm him? Well, over the next couple of chapters, this question will be answered. But we also see at this time of Jacob's return to Canaan an important marker of God's covenant faithfulness to Jacob. 
as well as the sanctification that Jacob had undergone these two previous decades. We will look at Jacob's journey home today in three points. First, there is anxiety in verses 1 through 12. Jacob realizes that as he is returning to Canaan, he must deal with this matter of Esau. And hopefully, although not certainly, in peace. Second, we see anticipation in verses 13 through 23. Realizing that this meeting with Esau is inevitable, Jacob begins to make preparations. And third, we see an altercation in verses 24 through 32. In the midst of this tension with Esau, Jacob finds himself wrestling a much more worthy adversary. So we have anxiety, anticipation, and altercation. These are our points for today. So first we look at the anxiety in verses 1 through 12. Now we see that as Jacob returns to Canaan, he is greeted by the angels of God. This comes to him as a sign of help and a sign of confirmation. He is going where God wants him to go, and God has sent his messengers and protectors to aid him. In light of the unresolved situation with Esau, Jacob would very likely be coming back to Canaan with some fear, some concern about potential evil that could be done to him there. Has Esau just been sitting there seething with rage for 20 years, continuing to plot his revenge? For Esau would have known that Jacob couldn't stay away forever. At some point, he would have to come back to collect his promised inheritance. So Jacob probably had to wrestle with many doubts. Maybe even in his, the deep, dark recesses of his heart, he contemplated turning back going and making his home somewhere else where that baggage wouldn't follow him. And yet God had commanded him to go back to Canaan. And in order to confirm and strengthen him in this, God continues to send these signs of confirmation that Jacob is doing the right thing. God's own angels will be there to protect Jacob should all else fail. Jacob names this place Mahanaim, or two camps. Now, there's a couple of reasons why Jacob might use this name. He will, in preparation to meet Esau, divide his house into two camps, so that one might escape if the other is attacked. But there's also two camps there, because Jacob is there with all of his people with him, but then there's also God's angels there. There's a camp of God's own forces there alongside Jacob's. And just as Jacob has struggled with man, he is soon there in that place about to struggle with God. So Jacob sends messengers ahead to find Esau and deliver the news that Jacob is coming back. This would represent a new era of dealings with Esau. In their younger years, their entire relationship seemed to be one of tension and deception. But that's not going to be the case anymore. Young Jacob, had he come back, he would have likely tried to return under disguise and deception. He certainly wouldn't want Esau to know his whereabouts and intentions. But this new Jacob, the Jacob after 20 years of sanctifying struggle, is now being open. He's being transparent with his brother. He tells Esau where he has been and what has happened to him. 
and that he's now coming back. He even tells Esau that he has acquired much wealth and property, and that he hopes for peace and reconciliation between the two of them. He hopes that after these 20 years, Esau has cooled off, and that he will find favor in his sight. But the response that Jacob receives from Esau is a bit concerning. Esau replies that he is coming to meet Jacob with 400 men. Now, as we'll find out later, the 400 are likely either just an abundance of caution in case they run into trouble on the way or in case Jacob ends up being up to his old tricks. Or perhaps it's just a show of how Esau himself has prospered while Jacob has been away. Anyone who can bring 400 men with him to help do his bidding is obviously a man of wealth and influence and success. But Jacob hears this and thinks that perhaps Esau is coming with a hostile army. He's coming to get his revenge. Now, on the one hand, it's understandable. And yet, on the other hand, if Esau was going to attack them, I doubt he would have announced it beforehand. But at any rate, Jacob is afraid of Esau and what he might do when they meet. And so fearing the worst, Jacob decides to divide his household into these two groups, these two camps. The idea being that if one is attacked and destroyed, the other will have the opportunity to escape. So not all of Jacob's descendants and property will be wiped out. It does make some practical sense. And yet in another sense, it does betray a little bit of a lack of faith. Has God brought Jacob all this way only for him and half his descendants to be killed after all these promises and blessings? Seems unlikely. And after all, the very angels, the very armies of God are encamped around him. What has Jacob to fear? So his first step of response to this fear is not the best, but the second is much better. For we see that the next thing that Jacob does is he prays to God for deliverance. He is demonstrating here his faith in God. His faith that God is sovereign and able to deliver him from enemies, and even those who do not fear him. Esau is not a man of faith. He is not a worshiper of God. He's part of the city of man, broken off and separated from the city of God. He is not part of God's elect people. But that does not mean that God is not still sovereign over Esau's actions and the others who do not worship him. God can and does restrain and rule over pagans for the good of his people. And so this should give us hope and confidence as we are often surrounded by evil men with evil intentions. They cannot harm us apart from God's will and they cannot harm us ultimately and eternally. We see aspects of Jacob's prayer that inform how we ought to pray. Again, this is timely as we're going through the section of the Catechism on the Lord's Prayer and how the Bible commands us to pray. First, we see that Jacob prays using God's Word. In verse 9, he recalls the command that God gave him to return to his homeland. He is there because God told him to be there. And thus he calls upon the Lord to help his servant to do what has been commanded. 
When we pray, we ought to ask God for the strength, for the ability, for the means to do what he has called and commanded us to do, just as Jacob does. In verse 12, Jacob calls upon the promises of God previously made to him and asks God to act according to these promises. So what does this tell us? It tells us that God's word is sure. He can and will certainly bring it to pass. Now, this doesn't mean that he always does it in the way we want or in the timing we want, but God will keep all of his promises according to his will. He does not change. His word does not change. And so we can pray confidently using God's word and knowing that God will act according to his word. When Jacob prays, he essentially says, God, you have commanded me to do this and you have promised this. May it be true according to your word. But next, Jacob in his prayer acknowledges God's gifts of grace. We see this in verse 10. And he says, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servants. Jacob didn't have what he had because he was a good and righteous and powerful man. No, Jacob was a sinner. He was a fraud and a swindler. And yet by grace, God looked upon him and worked faith in him unto life. Jacob, like all of us, could never obtain life under a covenant of works. If he was required to obey, to keep God's law, to earn God's favor and blessing and salvation, he would never get there. And yet God, out of his mercy, chose Jacob, elected Jacob, redeemed Jacob under a covenant of grace. And Jacob recognizes that all he has is from God's hand of grace and favor. He acknowledges this and now he and how he now has two camps of people with him. He mentions this in his prayer when he first crossed the Jordan River to go to Laban, he went alone. He had nothing but the staff in his hand. Now he comes back with family, a big family and many possessions, enough to comprise not one, but two full camps of people. But after Jacob's anxiety, we come to our second point, the anticipation in verses 13 through 23. With this meeting with Esau approaching, Jacob begins to make his preparations he prepares a very large gift of animals to give to Esau, over 300 animals in total. This would have been a small fortune. Of course, this shows just how much God has blessed Jacob in his time with Laban and that he has over 300 animals to spare. I would imagine for a lot of people who deal in animals, 300 would be all that they have. But that's just what Jacob has that's extra that he can afford to give away. Jacob sends these gifts with his servants, but he sends them in waves. He sends them in groups. So each group will come to Esau separately, and the gift will keep getting larger and larger as Esau gets closer. Jacob is really trying to grease the wheels with Esau so that Esau won't want to do any evil to Jacob by the time he meets him. Now, this doesn't mean that Jacob is entirely acting out of selfish motivation. It's very likely that after everything he's been through in the last 20 years and remembering what happened before that, Jacob probably does feel sorry 
for the earlier harm and treachery that he did to Esau. These gifts were a form of appeasement, a sort of buttering Esau up for their meeting. They were also likely an attempt at an apology, an attempt to show Esau how he had changed. Whereas young Jacob only looked out for himself and swindled Esau out of everything he could, older Jacob wants to bless Esau. He wants Esau's good and to share the good things he has with his brother. Jacob is a different man and he's operating with a very different set of motivations than he was before. So Jacob sends these presents on ahead first. Then later in the night, he sends his family. He sends his wives, concubines, and sons over the river. This is done for safety. They're not all sent together, so they're not all vulnerable to attack at once. It's also a show to Esau that as he approaches gradually, he'll see more and more how God has blessed Jacob and how Jacob in turn wants to bless and help and reconcile with Esau. But one net result of this strategy is that after everyone else is sent, Jacob is left for a time alone. And this brings us to our final point. After the anxiety and the anticipation, we come to the altercation in verses 24 through 31. When Jacob is left alone without any of his family or servants, we see that he has another visitor, a man. And we read that Jacob wrestles with this man until the break of day. They go at it all the rest of the night. Once again, in this time and in this way, God has manifested himself to Jacob. Now what is going on here? Why would God appear here to wrestle with Jacob? Didn't Jacob have enough on his plate with the coming encounter with Esau? Well, in truth, it was all related. Jacob has undergone in the preceding years many trials and many temptations. He had gone to Laban with nothing. And Laban was quite content to keep Jacob with nothing. Jacob himself said this in the previous chapter. He told Laban how Laban never meant to do good for him. He would have rather Jacob left empty-handed. And yet while Laban and his wickedness were a means, this was God testing and trying and refining Jacob. It put forth the question, would Jacob remain faithful to God even in difficult circumstances? And Jacob did. Not perfectly. We saw Jacob's sin and sins in his house even in the time with Laban. But by faith, Jacob continued to trust in the promises and blessings of God for him. Jacob pressed on, hoping in the blessings of God. Jacob had undergone the trials and hardships in his family caused by Laban's treachery in marrying him to both of his daughters. Jacob didn't handle this as well as he should have. He shouldn't have taken multiple wives, and even when he did, he shouldn't have shown the favoritism that he did. But through this, Jacob's faith remained, and God blessed and multiplied him, giving him 11 sons and at least one daughter. Jacob pressed on, hoping in the blessings of God. Even after Jacob was done serving Laban for his wives, Laban continued to cheat Jacob, 
breaking the terms of their agreements, defrauding Jacob out of animals that should have been his, changing his wages ten times. And yet God intervened in the situation to bless and enlarge Jacob, to give him wealth and prosperity, even despite Laban's schemes. Jacob pressed on, hoping in the blessings of God. Now Jacob has come to this river. He's come to this camp. He knows he is about to meet again the brother he had done so wrong earlier in his life. The brother who the last time he saw him wanted him dead. There'd be plenty of reasons to doubt. Plenty of reasons to turn around. Plenty of reasons to run and hide. But Jacob pressed on, hoping in the blessings of God. So Jacob has spent all these years striving with men and yet hoping and trusting and believing that God would be faithful to his word and would bring the promised blessings to pass. But on that night, Jacob faced God himself. Not that he had not faced God before. God had brought all of these other trials, used them for his purposes in Jacob's life. But this time, Jacob strives with God directly. And we see that Jacob and this God-man wrestle all night. And yet we see that the God-man does not prevail against Jacob. Now you might be thinking, this is impossible. No man can physically overcome God. And this is true. If Jacob were facing the full power of God that was set against defeating him, this match would be over before it began. In a certain sense, God throws the match. He lets Jacob win. But this wrestling and Jacob's ultimate prevailing is to make a point. It is a picture of what has been going on in Jacob's life. As Calvin says, the Lord knew with certainty the event of the contest before he came down to engage in it. He had even already determined what he would do, but his knowledge is here put for the experience of the thing itself. This all happens so that Jacob will go through it and learn from it. And we also see that at some point during this fight, God touches Jacob's hip and injures it, damages it, dislocates it. And not just temporarily, but permanently. This is set on Jacob as a marker he will carry with him for the rest of his life. He will literally come out of this fight walking with a limp. And yet Jacob continues to wrestle even with that dislocated hip. Finally, day breaks and the man tells Jacob to let him go. But Jacob presses on, hoping in the blessings of God. And he won't leave unless he gets a blessing from God. And he does receive a blessing, though one a bit different from the others he's received. The man asks Jacob for his name, which he gives. But then the man gives Jacob a new name. He says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. That's what Israel means. It means to contend with God. This is the capstone. This is the culmination of Jacob's struggles and sanctification which God had brought into Jacob's life and brought Jacob through so that Jacob might learn to trust in God more fully. 
So Jacob asks this visitor to tell him who he was. The man doesn't say, but he does bless Jacob. And even though he is not told, Jacob, now Israel, knows who he has strived with. We see this in verse 30 when Jacob names the place Peniel, the face of God. And there he declares, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Then the sun rises on him and he crosses the river, though now with this permanent limp to serve as a reminder of how he had struggled with God and prevailed. Everywhere he would go, every time he would take a step for the rest of his life, it would be at least something of a small reminder of the time that he saw the very face of God and received a new name and a blessing. When he contended with God and with men, when he was delivered out of the hand of Laban to his place and to his people. And in fact, because of this, it became a custom in Israel to not eat a certain part of the hip muscle on the animals they ate. They did this in remembrance of Jacob's trial and triumph. But lest Jacob think he have anything to glory in, let us remember Jacob's prayer. He knows that nothing he has, nothing he acquired, nothing he overcame, was because of his own goodness or works or power or ability. It was grace that had brought Jacob safe thus far, and it was grace that would lead him home. Jacob had come with empty hands. He only left with full hands and a full heart because God had blessed him. All praise and glory goes to God. Jacob struggled and prevailed, but only because God gave him the victory. Let this be a reminder to us. We all come with empty hands before the sight of God. We have nothing to bring to God that he has not already given us. It is only by grace that we are saved and only by grace that we will stand. For Jacob's faith was not in himself wasn't in his possessions, it wasn't in other people, it was in God. Specifically, Jacob's faith was faith in Christ, who was revealed to Jacob in types and shadows. He manifested himself to Jacob in the dreams and the visions and even in this striving, so that Jacob might believe and trust, and then strengthened by faith, press on to the promised blessings. Jacob never would have got there on his own. For all of us, the promised blessings of God only come to those who are in Christ. We are fallen and unworthy sinners. Like Jacob, we deserve nothing we are and nothing we have. We come with empty hands. And yet God has made a way of life and salvation and blessing through Jesus Christ's perfect life and suffering death. So those who by faith repent of their sins and believe in Christ and rest upon His grace receive eternal life and eternal blessedness. Are you striving on your own today? Cease striving and rest in Him. And then live a life of thankfulness and gratitude for what He has done. And press on to receive the promised blessings. Let us pray.
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness to your people as it was displayed here to Jacob. And as we can testify in all of our lives, you have given us so much. There is nothing we have and nothing that we are that did not come as a blessing from your hand. Most of all, we have the gift of eternal life and hope and salvation that comes in our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that this gospel would be written on the hearts of everyone here gathered today and that in light of this gospel, we would live a life of love and service to you, pressing on to the goal you have set before us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.